Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. A few years ago, I had the good opportunity to tour with some NPCers uh, in the Holy Land. And of course, that opportunity feels very distant right now, given current events. Uh, But Uh, One of the memorable moments to me was having the chance to visit the ruins of the city Caesarea Philippi, which was a regional capital in Jesus's day. And one of the distinctive features of Caesarea Philippi, uh, in case you ever have a chance to go there, is there is a river that flows out from a mountain cave that was associated uh, to the mythological god Pan. And uh, I'm not an expert on mythology, but uh, my notes this week reminded me that that Pan is that mythological god who's kind of half man, half goat, and uh, is uh, frequently associated with playing the flute. He is the god of fields, of animal herders, of shepherds, of groves, glens, and uh, often associated with spiritual possession. And so uh, he would attract worship, and the Greeks actually built a temple to this god at Caesarea Philippi. And uh, it's at Caesarea Philippi, which is famous uh, for pagan worship, that Jesus chooses to have a conversation with Peter. And I thought I'd rehearse the conversation for us. It's familiar, uh, but it sets the stage for what Jesus says to the churches in Revelation. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail it. And the rock, of course, is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, and it's that confession upon which the church has stood for some 2,000 years. And the force of Peter's uh, confession and of Jesus's instruction comes into relief when we envision it being said in the presence of this great pagan temple. Uh, This great pagan temple in the background associated uh, with this mythological god worshipped by many and uh, indeed in some ways representative of spiritual darkness. And Jesus says that the, the spiritual darkness of the pagan world will not overcome. The gates of hell will not 
overcome the church. Jesus is building his church. And we are here some 2,000 years later in this room as the church gathers in rooms like this around the world, or maybe not in any rooms at all, uh, and we are living testimony that Jesus is keeping this word, that the gates of hell have not prevailed against the church. And so the question uh, which is uh, relevant to the church in each generation across these 2,000 years is how do churches and Christians thrive, and what would wasting away look like as a church? And this we've pursued in uh, chapters 1 to 3 of Revelation. Uh, We've heard Jesus evaluate, we've heard Jesus commend, we've heard Jesus correct, and we've heard Jesus encourage uh, five churches so far, or four churches, uh, and then we've got five and six today. We've heard Jesus commend, for instance, hard work and perseverance uh, and not tolerating false teaching. We've heard Jesus commend the endurance of tribulation and of slander, of holding fast to his name, of keeping faith in the face of opposition. We've heard him commend love, service, patient endurance. We looked at this last week and we saw that that patient endurance was often in the face of suffering and hardship. And we've heard Jesus correct things. Uh, We've heard Jesus uh, correct the forsaking of the love of mission, of forgetting our place in the world to be a light to the world, to be a witness to the world. He's corrected our tendency uh, to put doctrinal purity and mission into tension with each other instead of holding them together and understand that they are servants of each other. Uh, He's challenged uh, susceptibility to teachers who encourage idolatry and immorality. And today Jesus teaches us through a study in contrasts. It's a contrast between a well-regarded church which is on the way out and an apparently weak church, which is about to learn of Christ's power and his compassion. And there are lessons for us in each of these points. First, uh, the challenge of relying on reputation, complacency, and Jesus' recipe for revival. And then secondly, endurance and an astonishing reality or lesson of Jesus' power. So to the first lesson, relying on reputation, complacency, and Jesus's recipe for revival. Let me ask you a question. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me ask you to just remember in your life, it would be fun if we were in a small group, we could do this conversationally. But let me just ask you to recall, what did you find most attractive about Jesus when you came to faith initially? Uh, You know, everybody's story is different. Uh, Your story might be similar to my story, having always grown up around the church with Christian parents and then having different moments in my life where the gospel became more clear. Uh, You may have the kind of story of dramatic change. You might have had a moment in your life where your conversion was much more dramatic. But what did you find compelling about Jesus? Was it, for example, the, the immensity of the love of God for you expressed in Jesus? That moment where you came to realize stunningly that, that the true God loved you so much that he sent his son uh, to save you from your sin. Or possibly your heart warmed 
as you read or were taught that Jesus described himself as gentle and humble in heart, that, that in our world of contentiousness, the Savior who is, is gentle and lowly, and that his yoke is light. And let me ask you a follow-on question. Do you have your, do you have your thought? Let me ask you a follow-on question. Does that lesson still compel you? And then what makes your heart most susceptible to spiritual complacency? I've asked this question of myself uh, this week. It's always fair for the preacher to preach to himself throughout the week. That's what we do in our studies. It's why we seem so gloomy, I suppose. By Thursday, we've been preaching at ourselves all week. Spiritual complacency. Sardis was a great city in ancient history. It was known for its gold dust, apparently. According to legend, it was in this region where King Midas of the Golden Touch uh, got rid of his Golden Touch by washing his hands in the springs of the region. And uh, Seth Basinger, uh, this Monday past in our study, uh, reminded us that Sardis's citadel, the, its fortress sat on top of a reputedly impregnable rock formation. And you've seen enough movies that if a formation is considered impregnable, what's the first thing that is going to happen? It's going to get captured. Uh, and uh, what what happened to this impregnable fortress in Sardis uh, built up on kind of this big rock formation is that opposing armies figured out how to scale their way up into it, kind of like thieves. It was sacked several times. Its power waned over time. When Jesus was a teenager, Sardis was destroyed by an earthquake, A.D. 17. The city rebounded a little bit. Ten years later, it was in the running to, uh, uh, to be the home for an imperial temple. Uh, it was on the way back, but its reputation was not what it once was. It was good, but not great. And so Jesus introduces himself to the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits uh, describe the Holy Spirit, uh, that Jesus is the sender of the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars describe angels. It's a picture of heavenly cosmic power and authority. That Jesus with cosmic power and authority speaks to the church. I know your works... You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, the unbelieving world of that day would not have cared at all about the church in Sardis. If they thought about the church in Sardis, they were probably a little bit, um, you know, put off by the church in Sardis. So I think Jesus means the reputation of the Sardis Christians among the other Christians. That it was their reputation in the Christian world. You could imagine a Christian from Sardis showing up at the annual Christian conference, uh, and maybe they wore name tags, and Christians from Ephesus and Thyatira would say, oh, you're from Sardis. Here things are, things are going well there. I mean, maybe uh, the church in Sardis was wealthy. Seems like they had uh, a good ministry happening. Maybe the other churches sent them fundraising letters. Maybe the church in Sardis responded. 
But like their home city, the church in Sardis, the Christians in Sardis, were cruising on their reputation. They'd become complacent. Jesus is not impressed. He's not impressed by this self-assessment or by this assessment of other Christians. People viewed the church as alive. Jesus said the church was about to die. What will be the cause of death? Well, there's a spiritual autopsy revealed in Jesus' proposed solution to the church. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So there's this church with this good reputation that's become complacent. And Jesus says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And uh, of all of these words that I pondered this week, the word what is the word that I pondered the most. What had they forgotten? What did they need to remember? It seems like answering that question is the key word. And it's interesting that this is less a what of content. It's not that they'd forgotten the doctrine of the gospel. Now, I've I've never fooled anyone as a Greek scholar, but I did look up in, in every Greek resource that I had available to me, Uh, the meaning of this word what, and it's more the what that describes uh, the manner in which something happens. I suppose in English we could say how. They'd forgotten in what manner they'd heard the gospel. Perhaps it means that they'd forgotten as they're going through their life in Sardis, as they're uh, being well regarded as Perhaps they're fitting in with the city. Perhaps uh, they're not really, uh, you know, out and about doing mission. Perhaps they'd forgotten that someone had carried the gospel to them. Perhaps they'd forgotten that the gospel came to them at personal sacrifice. Perhaps they'd forgotten about the message of a king and a savior so compelling a king who took the death penalty for their sin, who rose to new life, who conquered death and would return in glory, that that they'd forgotten how the gospel got to them. And in forgetting about how the gospel got to them, they weren't so worried about how the gospel was going to get to other people. Life in Sardis was good. And here's what I wondered. I wondered if they'd also forgotten in what manner of their heart they'd received the gospel. I I wonder if their affections had grown cold. I, I wonder if the love of God in Christ that had so stunningly captivated them had changed their hearts, had changed their vision, had reorganized their priorities. I, I wonder if they'd forgotten that. It was a a challenging question to ask myself. Thinking back to 
uh, that it's, for me it was in um, middle school, really, that I became a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. I think I always knew about Jesus, but it was really in middle school where uh, the Holy Spirit woke my heart uh, to Jesus, and I, I believed what I'd been taught across the years. And I can think back to some of the things that I did as a Christian in seventh, eighth grade, and ninth grade. I remember sharing the gospel with friends in high school who subsequently never talked to me again. And I mean, it's, it's true. It really happened. Um, I, I remember being on college campus as a Christian, sharing the gospel. It was uh, during an era where you could go like dorm room to dorm room, sharing the gospel with people. And I, I was reflecting on that. I'm like, am I still the same person? I mean, I, I'm a pastor. 27 years of being a pastor, I have a reputation. But I also have a, a mortgage and plans and a retirement account. And I wonder about complacency. How does this speak to me? It's humbling to own Jesus' words for ourselves. Are there places where we as a church or as individual Christians cruise on our reputation? If following Jesus is a long run, if it's a marathon, and we encounter the ups and downs of life and we get weary and we live through kind of this uh, pressure of our rapidly changing culture where it's so weird to believe in Jesus and we just cruise a little on reputation, then let me ask you one more question. And since complacency is more a risk to longer-term Christians. I'll ask this question to us, and I'm going to put myself in this category, because we know that it's very often the younger Christians who are on fire, right? So for those of us who have been believers for a moment, let me ask you this question. Have we learned anything about life that makes Jesus less compelling? Have we learned anything, for instance, about the suffering and the hardship that life can bring that makes the report of a king who suffered more than any person has ever suffered to love more deeply than anyone has ever loved? Have we learned anything about the hardness of life that has made Jesus less compelling? I think not. I, I, I think when we come to grips with how hard life is, Jesus becomes more compelling. Have we found anything or anyone more glorious than the Son of God whose absolute value glory fills the heaven? Is there anything that we've attained that would be comparable in glory? Surely not. Is there anything that we've achieved in life that's greater than what Jesus has achieved for us? I don't think so. Have we built, I don't know, a family, a friend network that's more durable than the family which God is building through the adoption of the sons and daughters of the king? Jesus is always more compelling. And it's, 
It's leaning into what is more compelling. It's having a, a bigger vision of Christ, which pushes back against our complacency. Revival has become such a church culture word that it's difficult to use because it conjures up images of revival type events uh, and we can debate the merit of those events, but it is the language that Jesus uses to the Sardis Christians. He uses the language of revival. They're dead or they're at least about to die. They don't need reputation management. What they need is life. And so here's Jesus' plan for revival. And, and if you ever think you might struggle with complacency, this is Jesus' plan for your revival. Come back to the same truth. He doesn't give them new information. Come back to the same stunning, amazing truth of an eternal son who left all of his glory and as Paul puts it in Philippians, took on the form of a slave. Not because that was a, a one-off thing to do, but because it's the very nature of God to give and to give and to give because it is the nature of God to love. And He loves by giving. Uh, and He loves by giving not just His good, but He loves by giving His great. And He loves not just by giving a little, and he loves by giving his all. This one who in the form of a slave went to a cross and died in open public humiliation so that one day at the throne of judgment you can stand in open public acknowledgement and saying, I have forgiven you and I love you and I welcome you. Come back to that truth. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess him before my Father and my angels. Can you just, would you dare to put your name into that verse? Is it okay to do that? Can you imagine if you're a Christian and this being clothed in white garments is a picture of being clothed in, in Christ's righteousness, that where it appears later in the book of Revelation, uh, it's not only the martyrs, but the whole church who are clothed in white, that, that as you are clothed in Christ and as you are brought before the Father, that Jesus says your name. What's your name? Here's Dave. I acknowledge him. He acknowledged me. He believed in me. I acknowledge him. I died for him. Let that push back against any complacency that you might battle. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But there is, by contrast, a church of very little reputation that we meet next. In this lesson about patient endurance and the astonishing reality of Jesus' power, this is uh, the church in Philadelphia. It is, by contrast to Sardis, of no reputation and very little power. And they are the church for which Jesus only has encouragement. 
uh, look at it. There's no actual critique of the church of Philadelphia. Now there's something to ponder. This church of no power and of little reputation is the one that gets it right. The one that Jesus doesn't have a critique for. How we evaluate the healthiness of churches is something we should reevaluate. This is a church for whom Jesus has only encouragement to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Jesus is holy, he's true, and he has the power to open the door to God's kingdom. This key of David image draws from an Old Testament story. We don't have time uh, to do the whole story, but, but in Isaiah, uh, the story is told of God's replacement of a self-seeking government official uh, named Shebna with a righteous official named Eliakim. Eliakim is given the key of David, which is control over the royal palace. And in Isaiah, we read of Eliakim, he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. But as the story unfolds, Eliakim, this righteous man, has all of the authority, but not the power to use it. Because the story of Eliakim unfolds, and he's described uh, like a peg that falls out of the wall when the load gets too great. Have you ever done that uh, at home? Um, I'm about to tell something self-revealing, but like I'm not the best with those drywall anchors. You know, some of you are drywall anchor experts, but like you, you could like hang a, a mountain climber off of your drywall anchors. I, I can barely hang a baseball hat. Like you put the, the hat up on the drywall hanger and the, the thing just falls out. And you're like, well, now we've got a serious problem because I have to buy a piece of furniture to put in front of this giant <laughs> hole that I've created on my wall. That's the way Eliakim was described. He wasn't strong enough for the load. So God sent someone else who was strong enough for the load, Jesus. He says he has the key to the house of David, which means he has the authority to open the key to the kingdom. And he has the power to do it, which is exactly what this church needs to hear. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. The church has little power but Jesus' pleasure. And he is about to show them an astonishing display of his own power. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. And commentators think that this probably refers to kind of local tension between Jewish persons and Christian persons in Philadelphia at that time. They say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Bow down in the book of Revelation. It's also the word for worship. And it's always voluntary. Whether it's bowing down before Jesus or bowing down before 
uh, an idol, it's always voluntary. You're like, well, what's the big deal about that? The big deal about that is that persons who bow down are not coerced to do so. So this is not a picture of Jesus powerfully crushing the Philadelphian Christians' opponents. It's not a picture of coercion. It's a picture of conversion. It's a picture of Jesus powerfully converting those who were hassling the church, those who said they were the ones who really belonged to God. Jesus comes and he tells this church of little power, he says, I I am going to do something so amazing. I'm going to convert your enemies. And they're going to become worshipers of me, which is an amazing encouragement to an apparently weak church to keep witnessing because Jesus is sovereign over everyone's salvation. Even the salvation of those who seem to us unlikely to be saved. So who in the person in your life seems so hard to the gospel, too opposed to the gospel, too ready to get in your face about your love for Jesus. (laughs) This verse is for you to keep loving them. This verse is for you to keep praying for them. You may feel like you have no influence in their life, that you are of but little power, but Jesus has the power. He holds the keys. He opens the doors. No one can shut them. He has the authority and the power. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. It's interesting that the, um, the sharpest commentators on this verse suggest that this word about patient endurance that Jesus says is the word about Jesus' own endurance. That how Jesus endured. The result of Jesus' faithful, true endurance. Think about this. Uh, the result of Jesus' faithful endurance all the way to the cross, all the way through the cross, all the way through the empty tomb, all the way through the ascension to heaven, Uh, those moments uh, when Jesus seemed to have less than little power standing before Pilate, carrying his cross, dying on Golgotha, those moments where Jesus seemed to have no power were the moments when the saving happened. And Jesus says to the church, keep, doing, keep, keep following me in this way. Keep doing what I did. Persevering churches understand that Jesus' way often looks foolish. Always foolish to the world, sometimes foolish to other church people. Persevering churches that maintain faithful witness come into blessing, Jesus says. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Persevering churches who maintain faithful witness, even at personal cost, come in to personal reward. That reward, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. It's a picture of eternal life, isn't it? Being 
forever stable in God's forever temple, being named in God's new city. Having Jesus' name, as you will, written on you. What a word for you as you go out into the week. Jesus' name written on you. Will you persevere? You might feel like you have little power. You might be struggling to figure out how to witness. But if you have Jesus' name written on you, if you belong to him in other words, then it doesn't matter how little power you have because he has the power and you can press on. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast and for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.